Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Now, a wonderful opportunity to speak to the 15th chairman of the Federal Reserve System, Janet Yellen, a Fed chair through some of the most difficult years of this nation. Of course, we mentioned earlier her work on an American labor economy to bring it out of that slack. Of course, Yellen of Yale of a time of Tobin and Stiglitz, and now after the Fed at the Brookings Institution with important work with a group of 30 on climate. I want to get to that, uh, Chair Yellen, in a moment, but I really must ask about the weekend speculation of Treasury Secretary Yellen. If we were to get a Biden administration, would you be willing to serve for a President Biden? Um. I appreciate your asking and uh, the notion that it's a job I can do, but I really have no comment on that. I'm sorry. Well, that would be good. And we, of course, knew that would be the gracious answer from Janet Yellen. Chair Yellen, away from the monetary discussion, and maybe we'll touch on that a bit here, we must speak about this important research. You were steeped in this long ago and far away. A Nobel laureate introduced us to auction theory speaking about Richard Scarry and children's books at a Nobel Prize speech <laughs> in Stockholm. This is long ago and far away. You're, you're, very, you're very right. That was my spouse um, who won the Nobel Prize and um, uh, discussed the relevance of Richard Scarry to um, his right. work. Well, Mr. Akerloff's wonderful speech there, the really advent with Stiglitz of what we're talking about here. Wilson and Milgram, they're at a small school across the pond, Cherry Ellen. Yes, just they took, are. Just took the trophy as well. Can auction theory help us solve climate change by fixing carbon pricing? I see no evidence that it can do it. Can we actually get to a legitimate, workable auction market for climate change through carbon pricing? Well, um, let, me, let me say, referring to the Group of 30 report that we just put out, um, we urge governments to take the steps that are necessary to get a transition to net zero. And carbon pricing is central to that. So we strongly believe that every government should price emissions and uh, well, that's not the only policy that's necessary. That is a critical um, tool to create the right incentives for um, for a transition to net zero. Would the- there are different ways of doing it. You said auction theory. So one th- way to do this is to limit um, emissions by uh, requiring permits to um, emit greenhouse gases, and uh, those they would create a market in which they would be priced. It's possible to auction the permits if the permits are auctioned. I'm not aware of any country that's doing that now, but that would uh, generate revenue that could be used for many different purposes, including uh, compensating right. low-income people. But a more straightforward way to do this, and it's what I would recommend for the United States that hopefully we will 
in the years ahead go in this direction is simply to put in place a carbon tax. Um, it, a very efficient way to price carbon would be uh, to go to the mine head, the well, um, where, where energy uh, that creates carbon emissions enters the economy and to simply levy a tax. So um, I think that's an easier and more efficient way than auctioning permits, but one way or another, um, right. we think carbon pricing is important. With your report with Governor Carney and with all of the efforts, Jacob Frankel and all of the group of 30, if we say that auction pricing has failed, where is the evidence that these societies will do a carbon tax? Are you optimistic we can get a carbon tax initiated country to country? Well, different countries have taken different approaches. And what we're looking for is carbon pricing. Uh, for the United States that doesn't have this in place, I would, and other countries that have not started going down this route, I think car a carbon tax is um, a reasonable way to go. But um, auctioning off permits or simply uh, putting in place a system where there uh, needs to be a permit to emit, that's, that's um, an approach that we see in many European countries. And we're not criticizing that as an alternative. Chair Yellen, as I was reading this report, I was struck by the firepower of the people who co-authored this. It's who's who in central banking weighing in on important policy. And I know you've been called on to weigh in on other important policy in the United States. In August, it was reported that you'd had conversations with the Biden-Harris camp about how to fix the economy going forward. Can you share anything from what you think we should do to get the economy back on track from here? Right. Well, let me say that I did meet with Biden and Harris and brief them about financial sector issues, but I'm not working with the campaign. Um, but you you asked me what I think we need to do to get the economy back on track. Um, so I would say what heads my list is dealing more effectively with the pandemic, with the health related issues getting the infection level under control through contact tracing, testing, um, uh, isolation of people who have it. I think we need a much more effective effort that w than we've had. And um, it, if we have that, it'll be good not only for health, but for being able to open up the economy. And we've seen that in countries ranging from Germany to Korea to China that have been successful. And then we need um, support for the economy, both for monetary and fiscal policy. And monetary policy has already done a huge amount. Fiscal policy response in the United States has been extremely impressive, but um, actually it's it's much larger, the fiscal support, than what was done after the 2008-09 financial crisis. But um, the fiscal support has now lapsed. And um, so far, spending has held up. Um, unemployed workers who got that extra $600 a week through the end of July, um, they use that to stay current on their bills to support 
um, their spending. They even stashed some of it away so that they've been able to get through this last couple of months and pay their bills. Yeah. But it's running out. And I think we need to do that. And state and local governments also face huge budget shortfalls. Um, I'm working on a task force with the governor of California to address the pandemic. They face a $54 billion shortfall yeah. this year. I think that's very important too. So in, in the meantime, Steve Rusciuto of Mizuho just was on. He said that if, the, uh, if Congress were to pass a $2 trillion fiscal support plan, that he expects the Federal Reserve to potentially buy up all of that in order to help things along. Do you think that that's an advisable step? So the Federal Reserve's asset purchases, um, they've not made clear their plans going forward, and I'm expecting them to offer more guidance. But their objective there is going to be to try to keep both long and short interest rates at low levels to support an economic recovery. Um, it is not their objective ever to directly mm -hmm. try to help the federal government finance its um, budget deficit. And that would be a very dangerous kind of support to provide. But I do expect, I think asset purchases have worked. They're, they're holding down longer term rates. And I expect um, there to be ongoing purchases, but probably not geared to right. um, the federal deficit. Chair Yellen, we are rebuilding our institutions out of this natural disaster. I want to go back to James Tobin a few years ago, who you took your PhD with, where he introduced with Nordhaus the measure of our welfare system, just simply thinking about the welfare state within a capitalistic market. We now come up to where we are now with this historic election, and we've got the Democrats trying to get back to some form of social construct, and Mr. Trump and others with a Lockean individualistic nature as well. How do you perceive how we move forward with our new capitalism, our new welfare state, given the fiscal deficits, given the trade deficit where it is, and given a monetary theory that seems to be extended and exhausted? What does the new system look like for you in the next few years? So um, that's a hard, that's a very hard and comprehensive question, but I would say that I think fiscal policy needs to play an active role. Um, once upon a time, uh, starting in the 1980s, um, there was a view that um, the Fed can handle the job of keeping the economy operating at full employment, and fiscal policy should focus on allocative um, issues. And now we're faced with a world characterized by secular stagnation. There is a um, surfeit, too much saving in the global economy, especially among developed countries and weak investment demand. And it's been pushing down real rates of interest and depriving monetary policy of um, a lot of the ability it had to address, um, to address economic weakness. And uh, you know, I would never have imagined w when the 2008 crisis hit 
that short rates would stay at zero for seven full years. And here we are back again with zero short rates. And of course, there are unconventional tools, asset purchases, forward guidance that expand what monetary policy can do. But there are some limits. And it's important for fiscal policy to um, fill in that gap. And um, I, you know, I believe while the pandemic is still seriously affecting the economy, we need to continue extraordinary fiscal support. But mm -hmm. even beyond that, I think it will be necessary. But a good side of low interest rates is that it reduces the interest burden of the debt. And I think it makes it possible, and, and it's not a short-run phenomenon, short rates. It's something that's going to probably be with us for many well, years to come, and we can afford to have more debt than we used to think was sustainable. Well, uh, Janet Yellen, thank you so much. A most generous conversation, of course, in celebration of our Group of 30 report with Governor Carney on uh, our place forward with climate at control. Seema Shah joins us now, Principal Global Investors, Chief Strategist. Seema, welcome to the GOAT Rodeo. I'm sure that's what other people think this is at the moment. Seema, it's fantastic to see you. First question to you, I asked it at the top of the hour. How much hinges on the next two weeks as you put together your 2021 calls? Not that much. <clears throat> you know, we, we see this time. <clears throat> Sorry, I'm just cutting a moment. Um, yeah, we see this time and time again. You know, if you look at all the election years, through time, and actually, you know, the volatility tends to ebb away. The returns typically move with fundamentals. So at the end of all of this, once you've passed through the noise, the markets just go back to what really drives them, which, as we've seen this year, is going to be the pandemic and it's going to be central banks and a little bit of fiscal stimulus if we can see that. But those are the key drivers. It's not really going to be what happens in the next two weeks or even the next three or four weeks, however long it takes. Seema, we've been doing a lot on equity. Tell me what's tradable in fixed income. Where is a quote-unquote opportunity in yield? Yeah, it's, look, it's, it's a tough question at the moment. You know, we, we have still liked investment grades, but of course we have been reducing some of our allocation. They've given that you're not getting too much. We actually like preferred securities. You get a bit of a pickup. Um, it's still relatively safe area. So, so there are some opportunities there. And of course, within high yield, you have to be in the better part of that spectrum because, you know, the economic recovery is slow, it's protracted. There are a lot of potholes ahead and it's going to be those uh, riskier companies that are going to see that playing out in. So, of course, you have to be careful. When we look at equities, the story really has been, do you buy into the rotation trade, the cyclical uh, story rather than just big tech? Where do you stand on that? So we have maintained a pretty significant positioning to big tech through all of this. Uh, we still really like that sector. There's, you know, so much to be said that as long as you've got the ongoing pandemic, this continued concentration of working from home and reliance on technology, it still plays out. Uh, even the macro environment, you know, if you've got economic backdrop, which is a little bit risky like it is right now, then companies, investors just need companies with strong balance sheets, positive cash flow. You're getting that from big tech. And then, of course, with the low bond yield environment where we know that central banks are not moving anytime soon, um, I think everything plays out well. Now, having said that, there are um, there are hurdles ahead. We have to think about regulation. Uh, we have to think about you know, the fact that they have to meet really, really high earnings expectations. Now, through all of that, I don't want to say we haven't got any exposure to cyclicals because I think this is the time to start thinking about adding a bit more exposure because if we're looking at a continued recovery, 
and cyclicals should do better next year. Seaman, a recovery where? Seaman, as you look at things right now, momentum in the United States, Tom and I were just talking about that. A really good recovery, it looks like, emerging in China and just nothing of the sort in Europe. Where do you want that cyclical exposure? So a little bit in the US. I mean, look, I, I agree that, you know, Europe is just, it's a perennial disappointment. Every time we think it can come through, something else comes along. And, and certainly right now, it's not an area which is looking particularly attractive. Um, you said it, emerging Asia, anything which has got uh, any kind of close relationship with China um, and even the new sectors of technology there really should do well. So that's where I think that cyclical exposure can come from. And of course, from, from a kind of a large cap, small cap, I think there is, an opportunity here to raise your exposure to small caps. Sima Shah of Principal Global Investors. Sima, thank you. Great to catch up with you this morning. I've got a big wall here, folks. There's 47 TV networks on it. i got TV Monde in Paris. Not that I understand a word of it. But I've got Meadows on Fox. i got Radcliffe of Intelligence with Marie over on Fox Biz. And I guess that's the conduit for the administration. John, where's Senator McConnell? Is he out of doing any of these interviews? Leader McConnell was talking about a package, a skinny deal of something in the region of five, six hundred billion dollars. Yeah. I imagine he'll listen. I think he said that over the weekend, if they come to a bipartisan deal, he'll take a look at it. But it's yeah. not up to him, is it? Leader McConnell's got to get it through <clears throat> the Senate. And there's been no evidence the last several months that he has the votes in his core constituencies well, in that Senate right now, Tom, to pass a bill of $2 trillion. We focus on the stimulus with Jonathan Lieber. He is with Eurasia Group and thrilled that he could join us uh, this morning. Jonathan Lieber, you've written tersely on stimulus as well. Meadows is, is pounding the drum. What's the chance anybody's going to listen to the drum and join the band? I think it's a little late in the game to get this done right now. You had some support for a fairly, fairly large stimulus deal earlier in the summer, but with Trump's re-election uh, prospects cratering, he just doesn't have the stroke he had in July to push something through the Senate Republican Conference. So they're yeah. a much smaller number than he is. I think it's going to be a really heavy lift to get anything close to the kind of deal Mnuchin's talking about through the Senate right now. Our Kevin Cirilli sees the benefit to the president. He sees the benefit to moderate Democrats. Does the stimulus benefit Vice President Biden? No, I don't think so. I mean, I think that Biden gets it done one way or the other, so it's basically neutral for him, but it's a risk that this is some kind of bipartisan deal. President Trump strikes a couple weeks before the election, and that helps him. So if you're Biden or you're Pelosi, do you really want to take that risk? I mean, can you imagine being Nancy Pelosi? You cut a deal with the president two weeks before the election, and then he wins? You're going to be the greatest goat in Democratic political history. So I just don't think that this is something Pelosi really wants to do. I think it's a real risk for Biden if it happens. I'm so naive, John. I thought that policy was about helping the country, and not about <laughs> oh, just winning the election. Forgive me. Forgive me. <laughs> 15 days to go. 15 days to go, John. And last time around, those polls narrowed aggressively in the president's favour in the final two weeks. Does doubling down on the existing strategy get it done? You know, there's a lot of differences between now and 2016, the, the biggest one being just the size and consistency of Biden's national lead. This guy's been between seven and nine points since he clinched the nomination. There were times in 2016 where Trump was within two of Hillary Clinton, and that's not even come close to happening. Now, what's unique about predicting this election is that the swing states are all closer than the national polls tell you. But this has not really been, there's not been much variance in this election. So it'd be really surprising to see it tighten suddenly without a major game change in the narrative, like a big screw up at the debates or something like that for Joe Biden. 
John, let's say you're right. Let's say markets are right that President uh, that President Trump loses the election, that former Vice President Biden wins, that we get some sort of blue wave. Are markets adequately pricing in the potential change to taxes and other fiscal approaches of a Democratic uh, majority Senate right now, given where people are positioning? Are they are they really gaming this out correctly? I, well, I think that the variable here is that most of our clients we talk to are expecting there to be a really large stimulus in Q1 of next year. And if that happens, then sure, that's positive for the economy. That's a big fiscal stimulus. That's probably good for earnings. But once you start looking through that and you look out 6 to 12 to 18 months, that's when you start seeing the tax increases and the new levels of regulation starting to bite. And I would expect markets may be a little slow to catch up to that, given that there's going to be this flood of cash in the first half of next year. So you're uniquely positioned to talk about this because you help uh, you helped craft tax policy uh, under former President Barack Obama's regime. Which sectors, which types of companies could get hit hardest by a new tax regime such as the like that uh, Joe Biden is proposing? Well, the biggest threats that Biden's making are to U.S. multinational companies. So you're talking about raising the corporate tax rate you know, below where it was during the Obama administration, but higher than it is today. But I think in some ways, more importantly, you're talking about changing the way that they tax overseas earnings in the U.S. And that's going to make U.S. businesses less competitive, make it harder for them to compete in foreign markets. And I think that, you know, in a year or two from now, once we're under this regime, we're going to be back to the bad old days of talking mm -hmm. about inversions and losing companies to foreign uh, 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 jurisdictions. There's going to be rules in place to stop that from happening. Right. But I do think that that's a bad look for the multinationals in the U.S. I haven't asked this question yet, Jonathan, very quickly here and very very important. On the first Wednesday of November, whatever the results are, everybody's going to dash to 2022. What is that going to look like? Uh, well, I think the Democrats, I mean, you know, the Democrats are fairly well positioned. If you look at the Senate, they also have the opportunity to redistrict coming out of the census in 2020, Interesting. Which, Interesting. which should help them in the House. But, you know, the historical pattern here is that presidents lose seats in their first midterm elections because of the backlash. So a lot of that question yeah. depends on how much overreach you see from the first two years yeah. of the Biden administration. And what's so important here, John, is I know you tried to redistrict me out of Bloomberg surveillance three or four years ago. I mean, you know, I. He's I, talking to John Farrell. John Farrell. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's I wouldn't, he's I wouldn't absolutely talking to me. <laughs> redistricting. I, I'm, don't worry, John, I'm working yeah. on it. I'll yeah. do it myself. I don't need help. Gerrymander. I'll get there one day. Salem, Mass. I'm trying. Surveillance senses. Eurasia Group. United States John, Managing thank you, Director. John Lieber. On the pandemic from the Johns Hopkins University, Joshua Sharpstein. Well, first of all, I point out that there really, at least in the United States, aren't lockdowns at the moment. People are not recommending lockdowns. They're recommending reasonable steps in vigilance and, you know, not uh, pretending that the virus isn't here. And I remind them that 215,000 people have already died in the United States, and it is not hard at all to imagine another 215,000 and then another 215,000 dying if we decide that we're just going to let everybody get the virus, um, which seems to be some people's strategy, but really is a strategy of giving up. What do we know about the, the Pfizer vaccine? It seems that they actually would be ready to you know, start for an application in November. November is a couple of weeks uh, you know, away. Are they the first ones to, to get it right? Well, we have no idea. 
because they haven't reported the studies yet. I think what they're saying is that they will have the first read of the studies um, with including data on safety sometime in November. And I certainly hope that it's positive, that it looks good, and that the FDA will look at it carefully, convene an advisory committee, and, and then we'll all be able to look at the data. And if that happens, I think we'll at least have a, you know one vaccine, which is great. And then uh, there'll be other um, uh, studies that will read out and we'll have a chance to get more. How do you, you know, convince citizens that we're not doing this too fast, that it's, you know, the track record of safety that will dictate the timeline? Well, I think the Food and Drug Administration has a very important role to play, as do all political leaders, in saying, well, the study is done, let's take it one step at a time, and, you know, in short order, convene independent experts, release a bunch of the data, allow people to look at it, and give, you know, a little bit of room for people to really take a look and say, wow, this really works, and it has a very strong safety record. And if people do that, I think the medical profession will feel confident, many people will feel confident, and it'll be the science driving the discussion rather than people hopping up and down, you know, and just pointing and saying, you know, just take the vaccine. That's what we don't want. Why are we seeing so many new cases in the U.S. and Europe? Is it a second wave or is it seasonal or is it because some of the restrictions were relaxed you know, too soon or by too much? Is there an all of the above option? I mean, I think all of those things are contributing. Um, you know, clearly there's pandemic fatigue. Uh, clearly there were restrictions that were, some restrictions were relaxed quickly. And uh, I just think in general, uh, the weather is probably not helping because it's driving people indoors. And that's why we're going to get a wave. That, that is exactly what's happening now. And the question is, how big a wave are we going to get? And can we get control of it? Um, and that is really going to depend on leadership. And it's going to depend on people's ability to uh, really you know, go back to the basics of what kept this under control. Joshua Sharstein, the Johns Hopkins University on a Monday and a Monday really changeable for the pandemic as well. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.